Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station Podcast, a show about learning the Rust programming language. This is News Episode 1, One Year and Counting. First, thanks again for your patience. For one thing, the end of the semester is a busy time. I wrote over 12,000 words on philosophy of science and religion from a Christian perspective in the span of about six days. For another, we've just shipped a brand new mobile web experience at my employer, and getting that out the door was not a small task. So the last few weeks have been very busy for me. The summer should be a little more settled, though, and I'm actually taking a week off right now, and it is great. I will still have some travel and some school over the summer, but nothing like the last month has been. Second, a little piece of news that will be of interest to all Rust stations— the first ever RustConf has been announced. After last year's, by all accounts, very successful RustCamp, the good folks at Mozilla, Tilda.io, and a few other places are putting together a full-on conference in Portland, Oregon, on September 10th, with a day of Rust training from core team members the preceding day. You had better believe I'm submitting a talk proposal, and I'm hoping to be able to meet many of you there. Third, Rust 1.9 came out this past Thursday. I'll talk about that some more in just a minute. Now, I originally planned to make this episode be a deep dive on smart pointer types like box, vec, rc, arc, and so on, and that episode is coming. However, as I started writing it, I realized that there is just a lot of news to cover, and so I thought I'd add another episode format to the show, summing up some of the big changes to the language, to the ecosystem, to the tooling, and so on. These episodes will probably only come once every three to six months or so, and don't worry, I still have plenty to say on smart pointers. But since this is, to my knowledge, the only Rust podcast out there right now, I figured it would be helpful to cover news every once in a while. So for starters, happy birthday, Rust. Rust hit 1.0 on May 15th, 2015, and here we are about a year later with a growing community, a number of companies using Rust in production, and an awful lot of progress on the language, the standard library, and many increasingly well-regarded other libraries out there. In the lead-up to that, there were a series of posts on the Rust blog which gave a great overview of where things stand and what's coming up, both for the core language and for the ecosystem. So in this episode, I'm going to sort of briefly summarize and interact with some of those pieces. I'll, of course, link them in the show notes so that you can take a look at them in detail yourself. I have to start by saying, though, I'm really, really excited about Rust right now. I mean, you knew that already. You've listened to this podcast and you've heard me gush. But everything I'm about to talk about makes me extra enthusiastic about the language and its future, which I think are really good. I also got to spend some time writing Rust for myself last night for the first time in a couple months. With everything going on, I just haven't had a lot of spare cycles that way. But wow, I really, really enjoy writing Rust. It was just really fun. So let's talk about some of that news in the Rust world. First up, as I mentioned a moment ago, Rust 1.9 came out just after the first birthday of Rust 1.0. And if you've watched any other language development process, this really is nothing short of remarkable. I know I gush about this a lot, but it, I think it deserves it. I would love to see other language communities adopt this kind of development process. It means we get new things whenever they're ready, but it doesn't impact our ability to keep working with the same code base. Imagine getting a little bit nicer environment in Ruby or Python every six weeks, but with nothing breaking. 
Imagine that with Java or C Sharp or C++. That would be huge. It really is difficult to overstate how big a deal this development process is for Rust. And Rust 1.9 added a couple real niceties. For one, we've now got the ability to define what a panic should do. You can specify whether it should kill the program with a full stack dump, or whether you want to quote-unquote catch the panic. And this lets you, for example, handle cross-thread panics, where you need something to fail on a secondary thread, but still be able to deal with it and have a nice stack unwind on the main thread. This change also lays the groundwork for letting programs specify more generally how to handle panics in the future, including just aborting everything with no unwinding and no stack trace, and there are times when that might be really important. This release also made the deprecated annotation available to developers and not just the core language. This is a big deal for library authors because it lets them use the same machinery that's available to the standard library to say, hey, don't use this function or struct or enum or trade or whatever. Use this newer version instead because the old one is going to go away at the next major version bump. Ultimately, of course, we want to get to a point where library authors can define and introduce their own annotations. They don't have that today. But we would always want this one to be standardized across all uses anyway. So this is a win, even if it's not the full win we're looking for. There are also some nice performance improvements in the compiler. And as we'll discuss in a moment, there are a lot more of these coming in the next year. Get excited. The ability to specialize the implementation of given trait method, which was a pretty big deal RFC, has actually landed in the compiler in Nightly, and it has now been put to use in the standard library for the first time. That specialization functionality will become available in stable Rust fairly soon, and when it does, it'll allow a lot of neat performance improvements, as well as some better ergonomics, better feel for using trait methods in general. And we'll talk more about trait methods and specialization in a future episode. There are also a bunch of nice improvements and additions to the standard library, as usual. You can check out the release blog post and release notes for details. But now, for some really nerdy fun. Compiler details. One of Rust's biggest weak points since 1.0 and before has been its compile times. I've mentioned the mid-level intermediate representation, or MIR, effort briefly in the past, but it's close to landing, and it's the key change to the Rust compilation model that will speed up compilation times, because it's the piece that will let incremental compilation happen. If you're coming to Rust and your background is only with interpreted or just-in-time compiled languages with a runtime, something like Python or Ruby or JavaScript, it might not be obvious that there are different approaches to compilation. It might only seem that ahead-of-time compilation is different from the interpreted or just-in-time approaches. But in compiled languages, you can also distinguish between needing to compile the whole of some artifact every single time, a whole binary compilation approach, and being able to compile only the parts which have changed, incremental compilation. One of the reasons that C and C++ can be compiled faster than Rust in the ordinary course of application development right now is that compilers for those languages support incremental compilation. When you rebuild after making some changes, all major C and C++ compilers, which means Clang, Microsoft Visual C, GCC, Intel, you name it, all of them can recompile and relink only the parts which have changed. 
So if you change one line in one module in a 100,000 line program, you only compile that one module and relink it. That means that your day-to-day -day compilation goes way faster than if you had to recompile the whole thing every time. And that same thing is true of languages like C Sharp or Java, or any language on the .NET or JVM platforms, which have a mixed model. They're ahead of time compiled to bytecode, and then just in time compiled for execution. And for that matter, the same is true of Elixir or any other language which runs on the Erlang VM. Unfortunately, Rust has historically not supported incremental compilation. But the new mid-level intermediate representation stage in our compilation process will make it possible, and that in turn will dramatically improve compiler performance in the ordinary case. So working on large projects like Rust, or Servo, or Dropbox's new cloud storage engine backend, or Tilda's Skylight tool for profiling Ruby, or really any large project, will have a much faster development iteration cycle once this lands. Rust will be much more competitive with other languages in this area, and that's a big deal. So let's take a couple minutes and talk at a very high level about how the Rust compiler behaves today and how it will behave when the mid-level intermediate representation changes land. And that's very soon now because this effort has been in progress for about a year and it's coming quick. For starters, you should know that Rust uses the LLVM compiler set, and LLVM originally stood for Low Level Virtual Machine, which is now sort of a confusing name. It's now just LLVM because it's more than just a low level virtual machine, it's sort of an umbrella project for compilers. And the project came out of Chris Latner's PhD work. It now forms the foundation of Apple's whole compiler tool chain, first for C and C++ and Objective-C, but now also for Swift. However, that low-level virtual machine that it started out as is now the base compilation target for lots of languages, including Rust. LLVM provides very powerful optimization analysis, so when you're building a new programming language, you don't have to understand every detail of what's required for optimizing your code across multiple compilation targets. You still have to understand a lot, of course, but not nearly as much as you did before something like LLVM. So with that as background, here's the basic flow of the Rust compiler today. Step zero, in good programmer fashion, is we start with Rust source code, which is just what you write in your editor or IDE. The first step, then, for compilation is we transform the Rust source to what is called a high-level intermediate representation. We parse the source and we desugar it. In the parsing step, the compiler just reads the source, and it interprets it in terms of the tokens that make up the source, the keywords, the operators, and so on. Desugaring, then, takes those constructs in Rust, which are just quote-unquote syntactic sugar for something else, and converts them into their more basic form. For example, we've talked about how the method called dot syntax is syntactic sugar. That is, if you had a struct named foo, and you created an instance of it named my underscore foo, and you called a method on it by typing something like my underscore foo dot bar with parentheses for the method call, this desugars into foo colon colon bar parentheses my underscore foo close parentheses. You use the first argument to a method, and that's self, and it gets handed over implicitly when you use method call syntax. But under the covers, you're really just calling the struct or enum method with the instance as the first argument. 
That's desugaring. So when the compiler has parsed and desugared all the constructs in your source code, and there are a lot of those to parse and desugar, what you have left is the high-level intermediate representation. Then the second step is to compile this high-level intermediate representation to the LLVM intermediate representation, the LLVM IR. And lots of languages target this intermediate representation, as I suggested above. Anything compiled with LLVM, in fact. So if you're compiling C or C++ with Clang, or you're running the Swift compiler, or you're running the opensource.net LLVM compiler for C Sharp or F Sharp, or you're using it as a front end for Haskell or Java or Scala or Ada, well, you get the idea. It all ends up as LLVM IR. This IR is machine code-like, but it's not machine code. It's assembly-like, but it's not assembly. And today, in Rust, the step from the high-level intermediate representation to the LLVM intermediate representation is a really big step with some repetition in it. First, it does all the type checking. When you get one of those gnarly but super helpful errors that tells you you tried to pass the wrong type to a function, it's coming out of this step in compilation. This step also does the borrow checking. When the compiler complains that you tried to write data to something borrowed immutably somewhere else, this is where it happens. And finally, it translates all the parsed Rust source into the primitives used by the LLVM compiler. As you can imagine, given the list of languages I mentioned a moment ago that use LLVM as their compile tool, these are much lower level primitives than the kinds of things you see in any high level language, where high level here includes even things like C. So then the third major step is taking that LLVM intermediate representation and turning it into a target binary, whether that's a library to link or an executable binary. And this step has its own two major elements to it. One of them is optimizing. The LLVM compiler takes that intermediate representation and it really optimizes it. You get the great performance you do out of Rust, or for that matter, Objective-C, or C++, or whatever else, when compiling with LLVM because it has a very smart optimizer. That optimization is also target-specific. The compiler takes that intermediate machine code-like, but not actually machine code, and turns it into real machine code for the specific architecture and OS kernel you requested. For example, 64-bit Darwin for modern Macs, or 32-bit Windows NT for the stragglers who are still running Windows XP, or any number of other targets that LLVM supports, and it supports a lot. So that's how the Rust compiler has worked historically. With the addition of the mid-level intermediate representation, though, there's one more step in the middle. The zero-width step is still just starting with Rust source, of course. That hasn't changed. And the first step is still generating the high-level intermediate representation, and this also doesn't change. It's still just parsing and desugaring. The second step is new. After the high-level IR, we generate a mid-level intermediate representation, an MIR. All the type checking now happens in the transition between the HIR and the MIR. This new MIR is something like a super simplified version of Rust. It transforms many of Rust's high-level constructs into much simpler constructs. Basically, it turns all the Rust code you're familiar with into, and here I'm quoting from the write-up on the Rust blog, a set of data structures and a control flow graph. This means that we can deal with everything from panics, to match expressions, to loop expressions, to iterator expressions, in the same basic representation. 
data structures, and a control flow graph. That, in turn, lets us figure out things like what actually needs to be recompiled when we change some of our code. If it doesn't affect that part of the control flow graph, we don't have to recompile it. It lets us define some more flexible rules around borrowing that are still just as safe, but are actually easier to write. We can think about lifetimes more thoroughly and more carefully in this step because we're not doing everything in one monolithic step. It means that the relationship between panics and iterators might become more clear. It lets us think more carefully and clearly about when and how we can drop, that is destroy, a given instance of some type. And all of that happens, again, before the final compilation step where we drop down to that LLVM IR. In summary, the mid-level intermediate representation gives us a lot of Rust-specific data about what's going on, not just the parsed and desugared things, but things that are very specific to how Rust itself works. And that in turn means that we get better compilation out of it. We can reason more thoroughly about the language. Then when we get to the third step, which is again generating the LLVM IR, because we moved some of those steps back up from the HIR to the MIR transformation, less happens here than did before. We do still do the borrow checking in this step, but it's actually less repetitive than it was when we had multiple full passes in the HIR to LLVM IR, because we can rely on some of the things that were figured out in that control flow graph back in the MIR. We also add a new step here, enabled by having that MIR, and it's optimization. Whereas before, we did all our optimization when going from LLVM IR to machine code, now we get one more optimization pass. Because we have a better internal representation of the Rust code, we can do some Rust-specific optimizations that weren't possible when we just went straight from HIR to LLVM IR. Rust has a really expressive type system, like we discussed back in episode 11, and adding the MIR step lets the compiler take much better advantage of that type system for generating optimizations. LLVM optimizations, by definition, have to work for everything, whether that's Fortran or C-sharp or anything else. And languages like Fortran and C-sharp and Rust are, well, just a little bit different from each other. By which, of course, I mean they're a lot different from each other. Being able to do these Rust-specific optimizations should make our code perform even better than it does today, which is pretty impressive because Rust code is already very quick. And then the last step is the same as before. LLVM compiles its low-level intermediate representation down to the target binary. It does those valuable but more general optimizations along the way. So there's a lot there. But hopefully you can understand Rust's compiler flow a little bit better, and you can see how this new mid-level intermediate representation will improve your day-to-day -day experience of using Rust, and it'll make the language faster and more powerful going forward. One of the neatest things about this, in my opinion, is that if you go to play.rust-lang.org, which I recommend you use in general because it's a neat little interactive tool online for messing with Rust, you can actually look at the MIR generated by the compilation process. You can also see the LLVM IR, and you can even see the assembly. It's super neat. Two other things to highlight from the Rust blog that have coincided roughly with Rust's birthday. One is cargo. One of Rust's greatest strengths from 1.0 forward has been cargo and crates.io, which together form its package management and distribution system. It's not an exaggeration to say that these are best in class. There's nothing out there that's better than them. 
There might be a few things that are in the same class, but nothing beats them. I've used pip and pypy for Python. I've used Bower and npm for JavaScript on a very regular basis. And I've interacted fairly often with other package management tools, whether things like NuGet or RubyGems, you name it. And Cargo and Crates.io come together to make something really special. When I talked a few weeks ago about how easy it is to use Rust, even for just little command line tools you need, a huge part of what enables that is Cargo, which manages the whole build and distribution cycle, from creating a new project, to building it, to shipping it as a usable library or an installable program, to installing those usable programs to your own system, to enhancing the functionality of the build tooling itself with tools like Racer for code completion or Clippy for code quality analysis. It does all of that amazingly without turning into the kind of nightmarish or hideously arcane interface you might have come to associate with other powerful command line tools. I'm looking at you, Git. Quoting from Yehuda Katz's blog post about Cargo, the three pillars of Cargo's philosophy are one, building, testing, and running projects should be predictable across environments and over time. Two, to the extent possible, indirect dependencies should be invisible to application authors. Three, Cargo should provide a shared workflow for the Rust ecosystem that aids the first two goals. If you spent time with, say, NPM recently, the Node Package Manager, you know how big a deal goal number one is. Predictable builds across environments and over time is huge. My team at work has been bitten by non-deterministic build issues with NPM over and over again in the last few months, and it's infuriating. Cargo, by contrast, makes very strong guarantees that when you make a given build, you can reproduce it exactly, even on a different machine with a different architecture with a different operating system a year later. That's huge. The second goal just means that if you use a library which uses another library, you shouldn't normally have to worry about that dependency. But what if you're using two libraries, and one depends on version 0.2.0 of some other library, and the other depends on version 0.3.0 of that secondary library? Well, things do get messy there, and Cargo already handles this better than a lot of package managers do, but there's still some room for improvement here, and one of the goals for Cargo in the months ahead is to make those improvements. Now, that last goal is a big one, and it's exactly what powers a lot of what I talked about back in bonus episode four. If you have a powerful tool like Cargo, which has strong conventions that the community as a whole embraces, but which also lets you adjust when those conventions don't match your specific needs, you have a pretty great recipe for success. It means you can write everything from an operating system to a tiny script-like tool with the same set of tools. Of course, it doesn't always mean you should. Sometimes you should just use a shell script, of course. But it's really neat, and it's very empowering for the community that you can do that. The last little bit for this episode is RustUp, a new tool which will replace both the current RustUp shell script, which is the default way to install Rust today, and the multi-Rust tool, which is the current standard way to install multiple versions of Rust alongside each other. What makes this especially interesting is that the plan, and quite a bit of this already works, is for RustUp to support not only installing and running different versions of the compiler, but also managing cross-compiles. 
The day is coming when you might well be able to do the same kind of multi-target compilation with Rust you can do with Go. And in terms of making the language useful for the kinds of tools I discussed back in bonus episode 4, that's huge. It also makes it way easier to write and distribute things like compiled extensions for Python or Ruby or Elixir or whatever else. And as a particular point of interest for me as a web developer, one of the planned target architectures for cross-compilation is the in-progress WebAssembly spec. Imagine being able to write Rust, compiling it, and then running it in your browser instead of writing JavaScript. For this web developer and Rust fanboy at least, that prospect is incredibly exciting. I'm not so quietly hoping to be doing just that, just because I can, sometime late this year when support for that lands. You can try RustUp today by going to rustup.rs and downloading it. If you find bugs or run into issues with things that aren't documented yet, you should open an issue on the repository for it. And it's a small enough project that if you're looking for a good place to contribute to core Rust tooling, it's a good place to start. I hope you've enjoyed this new format episode looking at some of the ongoing language changes and news in the Rust world. I'll only do this kind of thing every three to six months, unless some really big news happens, of course. But especially since this is the main and maybe only Rust podcast out there, I thought it might be useful. And of course, I tried to make it pretty technical along the way, even so. On that note, though, if you do know of another Rust podcast, or if you know of other interesting video content or blog posts or whatever else, you should tell me about it. I'm very interested in continuing to promote other parts of the Rust community. In the next episode, I'll discuss those smart pointer types and what it looks like to use them in practice. And the time after that, I'm hoping to have another interview headed your way from someone working on a pretty interesting project that's using Rust. Thanks to Chris Palmer, Hamza Sheikh, Daniel Collin, and Vesa Kaila Virta for sponsoring the show this month. You can see a full list of sponsors in the show notes. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can set up a recurring contribution at patreon.com slash neurostation, or you can give a one-off contribution at Venmo, Dwala, Cash.me, Flatter, or PayPal.me. You can find links to everything I mentioned on the show at neurostation.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Neurostation or follow me there at Chris Kreitcho. And if you enjoy the show, please tell somebody about it. You can also help others discover the show by leaving a rating and review on iTunes or recommending it in other podcast directories or just sharing it around on whatever social media you use. You can respond to this episode in the thread on the Rust user forum at users.rust-lang.org or you can always shoot me an email at hello at newruststation.com. Until next time, happy coding. Thank you.